Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, good morning, people of Grace. It is good to see you. I'm glad you showed up. I've worked hard in preparation for this. God is so very good to us. We are the people of grace because of his love and kindness and grace toward us. Uh, this spring, uh, in April to uh, mid-April to mid-June, the elders graciously gave me a sabbatical time, a time to step away from the responsibilities here and uh, to go away and be refreshed and be uh, encouraged and meet with the Lord and uh, Don and I did that. We had a great time. It was incredibly refreshing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Uh, we took a, a big trip kind of circling the southeast United States. We went to, to the uh, beach in Florida and sat there and buried our feet in the sand and read and contemplated God's greatness looking out over the ocean. Then we went up to North Carolina uh, to the mountains there and looked at the vistas across uh, uh, the mountains and contemplated God's goodness and his grace toward us. And then we went up into the Shenandoah Valley uh, and uh, rented a little cottage in the back of a farm. Thought it was going to be a rough week because we pulled up and there's obviously fresh manure around. And we thought, oh, this is going to be hard to take. But it dissipated. Uh, and then, but we're looking at, at the oceans and the mountains and the valleys. It, uh, I connect with God through creation. So it is very fun and a very relaxing time. We read a lot of books. We had changed. I'd read a book. I'd pass it to Diana. She'd pass it back. And then we would talk about it. And I chose in this sabbatical to focus on the topic of grace, God's grace. It was a topic I felt like I knew something about, at least after being in the ministry for so many decades. Uh, and yet I wanted to drink deeply in a fresh sort of way about his grace. And uh, God exceeded those expectations on my part. And so I decided I would, as that Matt is taking time off, getting his son married and taking some vacation time. And he asked me to fill in that I would share some of those things that I feel like I, some dots that connected about God's grace in a little bit different way for me uh, that were incredibly refreshing in the hopes that it would refresh your soul also. We sing of the song Amazing Grace and uh, we contemplate his graciousness to us. We're thankful for it. Uh, here, here at our church, we talk about grace transforming. But what does it really mean and how does it get expressed by God to us as man? Well, let me start with a simple definition of grace, not necessarily profound for those of you who have, who have heard it before, but the grace is simply defined as God's unmerited favor toward man, his unmerited favor toward man. He's showing favor. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, defines it this way, God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. Grace stands in direct opposition to any supposed worthiness on our part. See, grace is how God chooses to relate to us. We don't deserve it he, he, uh, to have a relationship with him. He's holy and perfect. 
and we're not, and we know that. There's nothing that we do that compels God to express grace toward us. There's nothing in us that would cause him to choose to relate to us in a lavished and amazing way in spite of who we are. Grace is God's MO, his mode of operation with us. Uh, uh, He is extending to us grace instead of the punishment that that we deserve. It doesn't, our our attempts at self-effort or self-righteousness are actually rejections or an offense to God's grace. Think of grace as God's language that he speaks to mankind. It's a choice of language, a choice of way to communicate to us all that's on his heart. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very familiar passage, uh, it says, for it is by grace you are saved. Through faith, this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace is a very generous choice of God toward us, that he relates to us in this way. He doesn't set aside his righteousness or his justice or the wrath that he feels because of sin, but he chooses to show us favor in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we're totally unworthy of that. Grace is an integral part of God's character. Uh, it, is a, uh, it is a conduit by which he expresses his love, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion and care for mankind. Those are, are many of the favors, again, that he's expressing toward us, and he does it by grace. Now, as, as I contemplate this, there, was, there were kind of three particular characteristics of grace that I want to share with you today. That's true of any form of expression of grace that God has when he expresses grace toward us. Uh, as mankind or us individually. Uh, It's first, it's undeserved favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or compel God to show his favor to us. There's nothing we can say, there's nothing we can do, there's no act of kindness that would cause God to think, you know what, that Ray Anderson, he really deserves my grace. No. Grace is a choice on his part to relate to me. So there's no amount of appreciation or obedience or love that I can express to God or you could express to God that would show God that you are a good choice to be an object of his grace. It's a choice on his part to relate to you. God could with justice condemn all of us to immediate punishment of separation from him for all eternity but he chooses repeatedly and in prolonged ways to show favor. Grace is God making a choice to relate to mankind. When my children were little, I would get in bed with them at night and we would begin to talk and I would ask them, does daddy love you? And they go, oh yes, daddy loves me. I said, well, does daddy love you when you're happy? Yes, Daddy loves me when I'm happy. Does Daddy love you when you're sad? And they'd go, yes, you do. No, does Daddy love you when you're laughing? 
Yes, Daddy loves me. Does Daddy love you when you're sad? Yes. Does Daddy love you when you obey? Oh, yes, Daddy loves me. Does Daddy love you when you disobey? I would interrupt that long, silent period, <laughs> that awkwardness that was growing, and say, your daddy loves you all the time. I didn't love my children because they deserved it. It was a choice on my part. It was a choice of grace. In the same way, God chooses to love us. He chooses to show his favor to us, even though it's undeserved. The degree that which we think we deserve God's grace for any reason is the degree that we're going to miss the true beauty of, of what God's grace is. It's not only undeserved favor on our part, but it's extravagant favor on our part. God doesn't express grace in small portions. He does it extravagantly in an overflowing way. By the choice of his grace, we experience his love. He doesn't love us a little bit. He can't love us a little bit. He can't even contemplate, oh, I only have a little bit of love for you, and I have more love for you, and more love for you, and a lot less for you. It's, he, he expresses love in an extravagant way. It doesn't make sense to him to do it in any other proportion. It's without measure. Let's say I were to say to God, God, I'm thirsty. So God sends an empty glass in front of me and he takes out a pitcher and begins to pour water into it. And he pours and pours and pours and pours till it's overflowing the glass, overflowing the table and running across the floor. And I go, okay, God, I get it. I can have all the water I want. And he goes, no, Ray, you have all the water I have. I'm emptying Lake Superior for you right now, and then we'll move on to the other Great Lakes and all the other freshwater sources around the world. God's grace toward us is extravagant favor. We don't deserve it. He does it in an extravagant way. When we begin to think that God loves someone more than us, we're offending God's grace because he can't. His grace is extravagant. The third characteristic of God's grace, besides being totally undeserved and extravagant, uh, is that it's all-inclusive favor. It's all-inclusive favor. This means that God is expressing to us everything that's on his heart. By a choice of grace, he's expressing favor toward us. Again, it's his mode of operation. It's his delivery system. Grace is like a package. And we use a package to put a lot of different items into that and deliver it to, to a person. Let's say again, using the example of God's love, you have this sense of, Lord, I need to know your love today. Well, God certainly expresses his love towards you, but included in that package is his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his compassion, his understanding, his patience, his tenderness, his empathy, all these are expressions of favor toward us by grace. So we have these three characteristics of it's undeserved, it's extravagant, and it's, all in, it's this all-inclusive package. Now what I'd like to do is look at two expressions, two distinct expressions of God's grace, 
Ultimately, in a couple of weeks, I'll come back and we'll look at an additional two. But I'll start with these two because uh, it's particularly important, I think, that we start with these and understand them. These are expressions of God's grace to all of mankind. God expresses grace to the believers, those that are his followers. He shows favor toward them. But he also shows favor toward those who are non-believers. It, uh, um, and it doesn't even matter. Frankly, it doesn't seem uh, to matter to God if non-believers care about him or not, if they even recognize that he exists exist or not, that he has a say in the affairs of the world. God chooses to relate to mankind by grace. I think it's important for us to understand these first two expressions of God's grace so that we can get a sense of and understand how God wants us to relate to non-believers also. The first expression of God's grace I want to talk about is called common grace. Now, as we go through this, you'll realize common grace is not common at all. It's not it's how we like to relate to people, but it's not necessarily common. But God chooses to relate to all of mankind with common grace. It's a choice of grace where God looks at favor. At, God looks with favor on all of man. He holds a man unique in creation. I'll talk about at least three aspects or three points of this expression of common favor to all men. God gives value to all people, to each one of us. The Bible teaches that, that man has a unique place in creation. He has a unique purpose in creation. We learn from the first book in, of Genesis um, that man has this unique opportunity to reflect uh, the glory or the image of God in a different way than the rest of creation can do that. So people matter to God. Uh, each person is imputed with value from the Father. This is where we derive our concept in the world of human rights, okay? It's enshrined in our, our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, common grace, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God imputes value to man. He holds them in a unique position from an unborn child to an Alzheimer adult. No matter who we are, no matter what we look like, the old childhood song, red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in his sight. God imputes that value to us as an expression of common grace. He doesn't say it's for his, his believers only, it's, it's for all of mankind. Along with that value, he endows men with, with abilities and talents and gives them a purpose to use those. We don't all have the same circumstances, but we all have the same opportunity to to glorify God or to bear his image in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Value, gifts, talents, and abilities, and purpose are expression of God's common grace, his favor toward man. 
He doesn't have to do it. We don't deserve it. We certainly rebelled against it, but he chooses that anyway. It's common grace. Common grace imputes value. Common grace also gives, uh, is an expression of, is expressed by God being patient with man, being patient with man's sin and his rebellion. He has this forbearing spirit in spite of our sinfulness and disobedience. He could choose, rightly so, and in all of justice, uh, to immediately punish us for our sins and disobedience. He doesn't do that. He doesn't because it's an expression of common grace toward man. We may experience consequences, we may suffer loss, but the full weight of our punishment for our sin is still off in the future. God is patient, he's giving us time. There's a purpose for that time. It's for us to turn toward him and quit running away from him. That's what common grace is supposed to do. In 1 Peter 3, 9, we read, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He's taking a long time. Instead, he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Do you see God's heart in that? He's waiting, he's waiting, and he's giving time not for us to keep sinning before him, but to understand the weight of our sin so that we'll turn toward him. The context of this passage in 1 uh, uh, Peter 3 is uh, what's called the day of the Lord. There's a day coming when Jesus returns and justice will prevail. But in the meantime, he's exercising long suffering. So when you wake up and read the morning headlines and the chaos going around the world and the factions that are developing among men, why isn't God intervening? He's being patient. He's being long-suffering. He's giving us the opportunity to repent and, and turn toward him. The lack of this immediate punishment is supposed to prick our conscience and stir us and encourage us toward, to turn away from our sin. God is the example that we read in the parable of the prodigal son, of the father longing and waiting patiently for the return of his son. This is not necessarily a foreign concept for you and I. Those of us that are parents are very patient with our children, or at least we're supposed to be, right? And so our child does something and disobeys, and we're patient with them. Let's say a, 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 boy, a little boy lies to his dad. Now, the father knows he's lying, okay? He saw him do whatever or knows what's going on. And the, the father doesn't, immediate punish, doesn't immediately punish him or discipline or put him in timeout or whatever uh, method. He's patient. He gives the son the gift of time. He's hoping that in the course of that time, the son will go, I need to come clean. I need to go back to my father and tell him the truth. But here's what happens. The, the little son's heart becomes callous. He lies. He thinks he gets away with it, so he lies again, and he lies again, and he lies again. 
And the Father knows, and the Father is exercising patience. He's waiting for that point, for the weight of the, of, of the anxiety for that child to cause that child to turn back to him because the sin is accruing interest in the meantime. It's creating greater and greater relation, relational damage with the father. But the father is patient, he's kind, he's loving toward the son. The father is expressing patience and forbearance and compassion, giving the gift of time to the little boy. God in the same way is being patient with our sin as an expression of favor toward man. It's presumptive for us uh, to believe that we're getting away with something before God. We're not. God is patient with the sinner, but he's not excusing or forgiving the sin through common grace. He's just exercising patience with the sinner. So, in common grace, he gives man value and purpose. Uh, he, he is patient with us toward our disobedience. And the third aspect is that he even, it, in common grace, lets the wicked prosper for a season. He lets the wicked prosper. In Psalm 73, I uh, encourage you to read that and study that, that particular psalm. It's rich with, with, with uh, meaning. But at the beginning of it, the psalmist says, God, the driving principle of the world should be that you're blessing the righteous people. But when he looks around at the laboratory of life, he sees the wicked prospering. He even describes their prosperity in this way. They have no suffering. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common human burdens. They're not plagued by human illness. It looks like who's prospering in the world is the wicked. That's common grace. God allows that to happen. Um, they don't deserve the prosperity, and like his patience, he's hoping that they come to a point where they realize that they're not getting what they deserve, as they think. This is all a gracious gift of God. God is being patient with them. He's being generous with them because he, he wants them to turn toward him. Sometimes when I'm talking to a person, even if they don't necessarily believe real strongly in God, I'll just begin to, as I talk to them and understand their life a little bit, I'll begin to try to point out to them, look, here's the common grace of God in your life. Look at what God is doing for you. You're focused on this over here, what you don't have, but look at what God is doing, how he's providing for you, how he's being patient with you, how he's not doing some things that you probably do deserve. It's common grace. And occasionally, you'll hear or see something or talk to someone, and, and even a non-believer goes, oh, I don't deserve this. God is showing me favor, and I don't deserve it. There was a song, now this is certainly going to date me to some of you younger folks, but a song by Chris Christopherson. He's a singer-songwriter. He's one of the four highwaymen with Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Chris Christopherson wrote a song that was called, Why Me? This is the first part of the lyrics of that song. I won't sing it. Why me, Lord, what have I ever done 
to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known. Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus, I know what I am. The backstory of that song with Chris Christopherson is he was on a plane flying somewhere, looking out the window, and began to contemplate all the blessings he had in his life. And he didn't understand why he deserved those. He didn't deserve them. They were expressions of God's common grace. See, common grace is supposed to stir a non-believer to ask, why me, Lord? What did I ever do to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Now, common grace, though, can create some misinterpretation or confusion on our part. For those of us who are following Christ and we see God expressing common grace, the wicked are prospering or he's being patient with their sin, this can create some real conflict like the psalmist in Psalm 73. Why should I keep walking in righteousness if the non-believer, the wicked, are prospering more than I? Or they're getting the things that I do. They seem to have more of God's favor than I do. It creates this confusion. At work, you see it when a guy who lies and cheats gets that promotion or gets a bonus. That's discouraging. You want to say, God, don't you see this? Or when you pray for your godly mother who has cancer, uh, that God would heal her and she dies and someone else is healed. Isn't God fair? Why doesn't he reward the righteous more than the wicked? Common grace is also misinterpreted by uh, non-believers. They think they deserve their prosperity. They think they're entitled to what they have. They think they're getting away with their sinful behavior, that there's no consequence for it. They interpret com common grace of God to mean that God doesn't care and they can do whatever they want. See, to understand common grace in this context when it creates confusion, you have to understand that common grace has an expiration date. There is a day coming. It's called the day of the Lord. Peter refers to it in, in 1 Peter 3. It's a day when all things will be made right, when injustice will end, when all sin will be accounted for and punished, when all the prosperity of the wicked will just vanish. The day of the Lord will make it all right. Common grace is the grace of God expressed to all of mankind, giving value and purpose, passing over for a season our sin, the consequence of our sin, allowing even the wicked to prosper in this world, but it has an expiration date. Common grace is God's favor shown toward man, but common grace is supposed to lead a person to investigate the second expression of grace, saving grace, saving grace. Saving grace is the favor of God expressed by Jesus paying the price for man's sin. 
By way of saving grace, Jesus pays for our sin, he covers our shame, and he takes away our fear. It's his favor toward us. It's undeserved on our part. Uh, there's, it's extravagant. It's this all-inclusive package. Saving grace isn't deserved. We can't earn it, uh, but it comes at a very high price to our Savior Jesus. Jesus paid the price through his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection uh, for us so that we could have a relationship with God. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation, but we keep trying to earn it. There's nothing that we can do after we trust Christ for salvation that shows that we deserved it. There's nothing we can do to add to what Jesus did for us. Again, reflecting back to the book of, uh, the first book of the Bible in Genesis, uh, we hear this uh, description of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. This fall, this rebellion of man against God caused a numerous things to happen between God and man. Jesus steps in and does everything that's needed for us to come back into restored relationship with the God. Now, as I describe the, the impact of sin or rebellion against God and talk about what Jesus did, listen for the extravagance of God's grace toward us, the all-inclusiveness of God's grace toward us, and we certainly don't deserve it. We experience guilt. Uh, we experience three primary things I'll talk about, guilt, shame, and fear as a result of our sin. First of all, guilt. We're guilty because we're sinned, okay? We did something wrong. We made a choice to go our way instead of pursuing God. We deserve punishment from God, but we need forgiveness. He forgives all of our sin through his shed blood on the cross. He satisfies the wrath of God by taking our punishment that we deserved. He doesn't reduce our offense so that he can excuse it. He addresses all of it. He declares us in saving grace that you are holy and blameless. You are perfect in his sight. He takes all of the righteousness of Jesus and puts it into our account. Because of saving grace, when he looks at Ray Anderson, he doesn't look at a cleaned up, dressed up Ray Anderson. He sees Jesus in Ray Anderson. That's saving grace. Uh, he not only, in sense, deals with the guilt of our sin, he also ad addresses the shame of our sin. We experience shame because we sinned. In Adam it, and Eve, it says of them in the garden, they were naked and ashamed, okay? They were shamed. Their shame was a public dis on public display. By sin, man rejected the opportunity to have a relationship with God. He was cut off from the family of God. We lost our place of honor in creation to be images, image bearers of God in that. We seek our value and identity apart from God now. We bear the weight of shame in our life continually. Jesus bore that shame. It says he was shamed or humiliated by his death on the cross. Saving grace restores us. Look at how he lavishes or extravagant toward us in this, this all-inclusive package. Saving grace restores us to the family of God. 
uh, we are called his children. We're co-heirs with Christ in the fa- in, for the family fortunes. He restores our place of honor. We're part of this holy nation, a royal priesthood. We'll spend all of eternity with him. Saving grace addresses our sin and the need for forgiveness, our shame, and our need for restoration of honor. And the third thing saving grace does is that uh, it addresses our experience of fear. It's said in in the fall of man that he was afraid, and so he hid himself from God. In sin, we gave ourselves over to the power of the dark side. We fell under the influence of the evil one, the enemy of God, the father of lies. Satan rules us in, that, in his kingdom of darkness with fear. By saving grace, Jesus says to us, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Jesus in, is greater in power and authority than the evil one who tries to keep us enslaved by our sin. We don't have to hide from God. We don't have to run for God. Matter of fact, we're supposed to, in saving grace, run toward God. He transfers us out of this kingdom of darkness, which is a place of fear, and he places us in the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. Sin doesn't have mastery over us. Death has no sting. The devil has no claim to our soul because Jesus purchased us out of slavery. We are free indeed. We don't have to fear the future because we know it is our Father who holds the future. We don't have to fear loss because there's nothing of eternal value that can be taken away from us. This is saving grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to add to what Jesus did for us. It's an expression of his kindness toward man. Saving grace. Saving grace doesn't just barely get us into heaven. It takes us from where we are in the depth of our sin and our separation from God and takes us to the very throne room of the living God, and there he calls us by name. He transforms who we are by saving grace. God's choice of grace uh, is him relating to man, both believers and non-believers. He does so by common grace. We don't deserve it. He's extravagant with it toward us. It is this all-inclusive package that includes his love and his kindness and his mercy and his compassion and his empathy and all kinds of other things that we unwrap in that package because he wants to have a relationship with us. God doesn't force his grace on us. We have to receive it. By grace you have been saved through faith. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again, in light of this understanding of common grace and saving grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We receive God's saving grace by faith. Faith is us responding to uh, God's gift and saying that we want to make it our own. Faith is recognizing that our self-effort or our self-righteousness will never overcome the guilt and the shame and the fear that we have as a result of sin. 
Only by grace can we be open, open up this all-inclusive, lavish package of, of, uh, of grace toward us and claim it as our own. Through faith, we recognize we deserve punishment but for our sin, and we bear the weight of our shame and fear, but by his grace, he does something on our behalf. Common grace is extended toward non-believers so that they'll come to the point where they recognize their need for saving grace. For those of us here that have responded to that uh, prompting in, in our spirit by trusting Christ or expressing faith in, in his saving grace, we did so through faith. Faith is usually expressed in some way by calling out to God. It's this transfer of trust from self-effort to what Jesus did on our behalf. It can be expressed in a prayer like this. Jesus, I can't earn your love, forgiveness, or acceptance. I can't bear the weight of my guilt, shame, and fear. So I transfer my trust from my self-effort to Jesus' work on my behalf. Lord, I trust you to forgive my sins, to cover my shame, and overcome my fear in Jesus' name. It's a simple prayer, but it's a prayer of faith. If you call out to God in faith, he says he allows us to experience saving grace. Now, I'm gonna leave that on the screen. I asked them to, uh, because it may be that you entered this room to, today in search for a deeper understanding of how to have a relationship with God. You do so through his saving grace. So it'll stay up there, and if you are weighing or contemplating that alternative of trusting your self-effort to make you right with God, or going your own way, or, or placing your trust in Christ, you can do so by expressing faith faith expressed in a simple prayer that's an attitude or expression of your heart. Now, I want to, <clears throat> while that's still up there and they're comp some are contemplating that, I want to talk to us as non-believers an application of common grace and saving grace. Okay, it is important for us to understand this as I kind of put this together in my mind and sorted through it and did it in the context of what the world around us, uh, I realized it was very important for us to understand common grace and saving grace in this way as followers of Christ. Because God is relating in a gracious way to non-believers. The wicked are prospering. We don't have to look very far for that to be true in your neighborhood or your office or turn on the news, but don't leave it on too long. It'll mess with your mind, right? God, your Father, and Jesus, your Savior, is choosing to relate to non-believers by grace. He's expressing his favor toward them. He's giving time, time for them to come to saving grace. Many times for us as believers, as we wrestle with the world around us, we become very judgmental and condemning toward those around us. It's not ours to judge in that way. It's not ours to condemn others. It's God's to proclaim at the right time. There is an expiration date on the injustice of this world. 
Think again of grace as God's language that he's communicating what's on his heart toward man, his love, his care, his concern, even to those people who don't give a hoot about God. He wants us also as believers to speak his language to non-believers around us. He doesn't expect those who are not in his family to think or to live up to the values of the family. He's patient with them. He's kind. He's loving. He's gentle. He's going to deal with their lack of faith and their sin at a later time, but not now. He's choosing to relate to them by grace. They don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. He wants us as believers to do the same. It's been said of Jesus in his lifetime on earth uh, that he was full of grace and truth. So we too should be full of grace and truth and reflect his image. So let's join God in speaking his native language, grace, to those around us, especially to non-believers. Let's cut them some slack. Let's not be quick to judge or condemn. Leave that to the Father at a later date. Let's look for opportunities to express common grace to those around us, to show love and mercy and compassion, to extend kindness and to serve them as Jesus served them. You're right. They don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. You're right. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. God does it for us. Now, if any of you has taken the opportunity to use this prayer to express your faith in the saving grace of God, then I want you to do a couple things. I'd like for you to tell somebody. You can tell someone before you leave church. Uh, you can tell someone in your family that you know is a believer, but tell someone. In your bulletin, uh, on, the, on the welcome slip there, down at the bottom, it says you'd like to speak to someone about having a personal relationship with God. Would you mark that and just put it in the, in the offering plate? Give us the opportunities as pastors and leaders of the church to come beside you in this young faith of yours, uh, to understand God's grace towards you in deeper ways. We all start a relationship with God by responding to his grace in our life. We don't deserve it. It's extravagant to us. It's this all-inclusive package. But God wants to have a relationship with us. He loves us. He cares for us. And we get to be, as believers, an expression of that grace to the world around us. Join me in prayer. Father, you are an abundantly gracious God. Your kindness is so overflowing. We don't deserve what we get. Uh, you have... Um, withheld your judgment for a season, that we might come to repentance, that we might turn from our wicked ways and turn towards you. We might turn from our selfishness and reject it and embrace the grace of God. Father, help us who are followers of you to be expressions of your grace to others, to show your love and your kindness to not be the ones yelling at them and judging them in ways that we're seeking to condemn them to hell. 
but let us be messengers of God's grace toward them while the season is ripe for that. We trust you, we wanna honor you and live in a way that brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.